This is Queen Victoria, and welcome to Murder Lab, the podcast where I don't talk about one serial killer, I talk about all serial killers and what they have in common. Today is part two of the Murder Lab series, where I'll be talking about two people who actually had places set aside in their basements to torture and keep women or girls. So the first one, uh, well, I'll be talking about Gary Heidnick and Mark Dutru. So first we will cover Gary Heidnick. Now, technically, he doesn't qualify as a serial killer because two people died and the, the number to make you a serial killer is three um, and with the cooling off period, that kind of thing. So technically two people died, but... Like Ed Gein, who also could only be proven to have killed two women, the extreme nature of their acts make them infamous. Also, if he wouldn't have gotten caught, it's feasible more would have gotten killed, and it's not unlikely there are murders we don't know about. So that's why I'm including him in this episode. So this occurred between November 1986 to March 1987, Gary Heidnick was a 43-year-old white guy in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He lived at 3520 North Marshall Street, which was a neighborhood with frequent shootings and abundant with drug dealings. As always, I'll do a quick background of the time period. In 1986, the Soviet Union launched the Mir space station, while the UK and France built the Channel. (laughs) Every time I hear that, I think of the movie in Seinfeld. Everybody out of the channel! Anyway, uh, the tragedies of the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster and the explosion of one of the nuclear reactors at Chernobyl occurred that year. Popular songs included Addicted to Love by Robert Palmer, Danger Zone by Kenny Loggins, I know you Archer fans just smiled, Bananarama's Venus, and Rock Me Amadeus by Falco. Have fun getting that song out of your head now. The Chicago Bears won Super Bowl XX. 1986 saw the birth of Lindsay Lohan and the Olsen Twins and the deaths of Donna Reed and Cary Grant. The first Martin Luther King Jr. Day was celebrated and Hands Across America happened, which, of course, I will never think of again without thinking of Jordan Peele's movie Us. Popular movies included Top Gun, Crocodile Dundee, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Stand By Me, and Short Circuit. And some of my favorite movies, The Three Amigos, Labyrinth, Aliens, and the fantastically wonderful Little Shop of Horrors. I was six in 1986, so while I was playing with my pound puppies, Muppet Babies, and My Little Ponies, Gary Heidnick was doing something a little different. But before we get into that, let's cover some details. My main book reference is Cellar of Horror by Ken Englade. I also cross-reference information or got information from the Serial Killer Files by Harold Schechter, the Killer Book of Serial Killers by Tom and Michael Philbin, the Encyclopedia of Serial Killers by Michael Newton, Obsession by John Douglas, and Chambers of Horror by John Marlowe. As I stated uh, at the beginning of the episode, his murder lab was his basement. So, first we're going to go through some important information before we get into the whole basement thing. 
Uh, interesting note, he was born in Cleveland, Ohio. His dad was strict and cruel, and his mom struggled with mental illness and was an alcoholic that left the family when Gary was two. Years later, she killed herself. His brother actually also had some mental illness as well, so it was something that was definitely uh, struck the family. He joined the army, but was discharged due to mental illness. He was judged 100% mentally disabled in 1963 and received disability. He was in and out of mental institutions and attempted suicide multiple times. He was trained as a practical nurse, but he had trouble keeping a job. An interesting note, he had an IQ of 130. 100 is average. Given, he was given a series of intelligence tests, and he scored in the 95th percentile. What's interesting is that even with his IQ of 130, he hung around the Elwin Institute for the Mentally Challenged and dated some of the women there, specifically black or Hispanic females. In 1971, he said God told him to start a church to care for the mentally and physically handicapped, so he incorporated a church called the United Church of Ministries of God. The United Church of Ministries of God. His congregation came from the Elwin Institute. He was the bishop and in charge of the money. He did, he did have services and activities frequently. A witness said she never saw him take money, and the collection plate was against church policy. If someone was down on their luck, they could stay with him. He was good with money. He did well in the stock market. He did say that Jesus gave him stock tips, so there's that. He started with $1,500, which became a $545,000 portfolio, which pr was primarily kept in the church's account. In 1976, he bought a house and became a landlord, which I covered briefly in my first episode. A foreshadowing and foreboding note, when it sold, new tenants found an 18-inch hole in the cellar that was three feet deep. Keep that in the back of your mind. Another detail to keep in the back of your mind, as unpleasant as it may be, he was apparently insatiable and often slept with up to three women at one time. Naturally, having lots of sex with lots of women has a natural outcome. In 1978, a mentally challenged woman had his daughter. Her sister was a 34-year-old with the IQ of a 3-year-old and was in an institution. They got permission to take her home for a few days, but did not bring her back as promised. The police found her in his basement. She had been raped, sodomized, and had a throat infection with gonorrhea. He served four years, and his daughter went to a foster home. In 1983, a woman lived with him and was sleeping with his friend, too. She had a son she said was Gary's and even called him Little Gary. The kid went to a foster home, and she wound up marrying the friend and having his kid. Two years later, he married a 22-year-old Filipino mail-order bride who had his son. She left him because he made her watch him have sex with prostitutes, and she said he raped and assaulted her. They were married for three months. Thankfully, she got away from him because things were about to get crazier. On November 26, 1986, he picked up 26-year-old half-black, half-Puerto Rican prostitute named Josefina Rivera. However, she introduced herself as Nicole, so that's the name he knew her by. She saw a Cadillac Coupe de Ville with a middle-aged white guy and noticed he wore a Rolex. She agreed to go with him, and he went to McDonald's. He got a coffee for himself, but offered nothing for her. 
So you can see his controlling nature right away and the conundrum he presented. He wears a Rolex, he drives a Cadillac, but he takes her to McDonald's. She also noticed that he wore an inexpensive fringed cowhide jacket that was stained and smelly. And while his beard was trimmed and neat, his hair was greasy. He finally took her to his place, and he proudly pointed out the way he had rigged it so no one could mess with the lock on his door. He had put his house key in the slot, sawed half of it off, and left the front half in the lock so no one else could get in. When she went in, she noticed the kitchen walls were decorated with pennies, and the hallway was papered with a dollar and five dollar bills. Someone finally topped Scrooge McDuck. They went upstairs and had sex. Afterwards, he grabbed her neck, started to choke her, until she begged for her life. Then he took her to the basement, which had an old mattress on the floor. It was dank, dirty, and cold. There was one window at head height, but boarded up. There was a white chest-style freezer, and the floor was bare concrete. He had dug a hole in the cellar and covered it with plywood. The spot was smaller than a wash tub and not that deep. So earlier, when I mentioned the people who had bought a house from him that found a pit in the basement, that's why I told you to keep that in the back of your mind. Once he got her down there, he chained her to a pipe. Here's an excerpt from The Cellar of Horrors. He picked up a small cardboard box and extracted from it a metal rod that had been bent in the middle to form a skinny U. Each end of the rod was threaded. The device was a commercially made product called a muffler clamp. Mechanics attached them to the underside of cars to cradle and support a vehicle's exhaust pipe. Heidnick ran one end of the clamp through a heavy chain, which he pulled from another box, and then forced the clamp over Rivera's ankle. A small metal bar fit between the two prongs to seal off the opened end of the U. He dug in the box again and came up with two nuts, which he screwed into the threads after first wetting them down with superglue. He pulled a hairdryer and aimed that glue to make it dry faster. He repeated the procedure with a second clamp. He flipped the loose ends of the chain over a five-inch thick pipe that came out of the ceiling and ran across the room. So she was chained in this nasty basement. But she did work on that window, and she managed to get the board off of it and get outside, still chained up. And while she's screaming, keep in mind he lives in a terrible neighborhood. So they're used to hearing screaming. They don't give a shit. But he heard her, so he caught her. And when he pulled her back into the house, he shoved her into the pit and put the plywood board, plywood board over her. The hole was not deep enough, even with her legs pressed against her chest, and he beat her with a stick, put her back in, forced the board down, making her bend her neck until her chin was on her chest. He put several bags of dirt on top to hold it in place and then left her alone. He didn't come back for 27 hours. She knew because the radio he turned on had announced, announced the time all the time. You know how it goes. After that, he kept the radio blaring at all times to cover any possible noise. He confided in Rivera that he felt society owed him a family. He had fathered four children by four different women, but all four were taken away by the mothers or by authorities. He said, society owes me a wife and family. I want to get 10 women and keep them here and get them all pregnant. Then, when they have babies, I want to raise those children here too. We'll be one big happy family. Huh. 
Sounds like solid thinking. How's that 130 IQ working out for you, Gary? So in line with his goal, two or three days later, he brought a 25-year-old, mildly, mildly mentally disabled black friend of his named Sandra Lindsay. She had known him for four years. They met at Elwyn. He frequently took her to McDonald's, and they used to have sex. She got scared when she got pregnant, so she had an abortion. Gary was furious, then offered her $1,000 to have his kid. She refused, and that's why he abducted her, to take away the choice. He chained her up and forced her to fillet him while Rivera watched. Later, he had her write a letter to her mom to say she was okay, and he mailed it from New York. Three days before Christmas, he ran into 19-year-old Lisa Thomas. She was not a prostitute, but he offered her a ride. He took her for burgers and fries. One account says he took her to his restaurant of choice, McDonald's. But another account says he wanted to impress her, so he took her to TGI Fridays. I know that would impress me. While they ate, he invited her to go to Atlantic City with him. She said she didn't have anything decent to wear, so he took her to Sears and got some things for her. Mr. Big Bucks, TGI Fridays and Sears. I wonder if Jesus advised him on that or if he decided that on his own. Either way, it worked. She went home with him. She had taken an allergy pill during dinner, so when he gave her a wine cooler to drink and put on a VHS of the movie Splash, she was passed out in no time. Now when I take a Benadryl while drinking, I think of that. Not that I do that every Friday and Sunday. Sometimes on a Thursday. Anyway, she woke up naked in his bed, and they had sex. He grabbed her throat and choked her. At some point, someone dubbed this as the Heidnik maneuver. That was his preferred method of sedation. He took her to the cellar and chained her up, adding her to the Heidnik harem. To initiate her into the group, he made her kiss his behind and have sex with him in front of them. Since he now had several victims, he tacked soundproofing material to the ceiling to ensure no one outside could hear anything. He still kept the radio going. Next, he captured 23-year-old Deborah Dudley. Like Thomas, Dudley was not a prostitute. She joined them on January 1st, 1987. I couldn't really find out much information about how he went about abducting her, but I would assume it would just be the usual, like, you know, he's going to give her a ride or something. What we do know is that on January 17th, he picked up 18-year-old prostitute Jacqueline Askins in a blue van. He took her home put her in the cellar, and thrashed her with a plastic rod across the butt and shackled her. The clamps were too big because she was so petite, so he had to use handcuffs on her ankles. So what did he feed them? Bread, oatmeal, Pop-Tarts, crackers, sometimes sandwiches, rice, shriveled hot dogs. And as a treat, every once in a while he would get takeout fried chicken or Chinese food. He had two dogs a huge part lab called Bear, and a scruffy mud of collie descent named Flaky. He realized he could just share the dog's food with his captives, so often he gave them dog biscuits or dog food out of a can. He even made it into sandwiches for them. Quick side note. I imagine you made the connection between Heidnik having a basement pit and Buffalo Bill and Silence of the Lambs having a pit. He also had a dog, similar to Heidnik. Buffalo Bill was based partially on Heidnik. He also had aspects of Ed Gein and Ted Bundy, but I'll get into that in an episode very soon. 
More details include, he liked the initial contact to be oral genital, but wouldn't climax in their mouth because he wanted to inseminate them and have babies. At least once a day, he'd demand sex from one or all of them. I mentioned his insatiability before, and it's important to note that he was still sleeping with other women while raping the women in his basement. He was bringing women to the house even while he had women chained in his basement. And that's part of the reason why he wanted to make sure they stayed quiet. If they made a noise, he beat them with a shovel handle or put them in the pit covering it with plywood and bags of sand. Or he'd put a handcuff on one wrist and connect the other cuff to an eye hook in the ceiling so she'd have to stand for hours on end with one arm above her head. He snipped off the plug end of an electrical extension cord and stripped the insulation to leave a bare wire. He plugged the other end in a socket and would touch the bare end to their chains. If he was leaving, he would put one in charge and expect them to report on any misbehavior. And if she said no one misbehaved, he would punish her. He also had them beat each other. Sometimes he had them have sex with each other. He finally bought a porta john for them to use, and he did bring them tampons. But originally, he refused to let them bathe, giving them disposable baby wipes to use. Later, though, every day he would take one of them upstairs to wash. They had to wear their chains in the tub, and after a few minutes in the tub, he'd push them on the bed and have sex with them. They could only wear shirts, so they were bare from the waist down, even though it was winter. At one point, he decided it would be easier if they couldn't hear him and know when he was coming downstairs. And if they couldn't hear each other, it would be harder to plot against him. So one by one, he cuffed one hand above their head, cuffed feet, stuffed a plastic bag in their mouth, and secured with duct tape around the head. He looped his arm around her throat to hold her still, and then he gouged in her ears with a screwdriver to damage the eardrums, twisting them until pus came out. He used three kinds of screwdrivers, small, medium, and large. I didn't find any mention that there was permanent damage done, unless for some reason no one thought that that was interesting enough to mention, which seems weird, because you'd think that that would drive home how terrible what they went through was if they lost their hearing from it. So I'm assuming that means there was not major damage, since it wasn't mentioned anywhere. It's important to note he did not subject Rivera to his treatment. She had gained his trust to the point that he'd take her out to eat or run errands with him. So she was above that kind of treatment. The first death happened on February 7th, 1987. Lindsay had been hanging from one arm for a week as punishment. She refused to eat, but he'd forced bread into her mouth until she swallowed. After a few days, she was vomiting and feverish and eventually collapsed. Heidnick kicked her into the hole, saying she was faking. He got some ice cream for them, came back from eating it upstairs, and discovered she was dead. Nonchalant, he said, mm, she choked on a piece of bread. He took her body upstairs and dismembered her. The women said they heard a power saw. He ground up what he could, except the head, hands, feet, and ribcage. He'd try to destroy those by cooking. He boiled the head in a pot on the stove, and he roasted the ribcage in the oven. What he ground up, he mixed with dog food and fed to the captives and dogs. He put some of the parts in white plastic bags in the freezer upstairs. Now this whole time, Lindsay's mom had questioned her daughter's disappearance, even though Heidnick had mailed her that letter. It didn't seem right to her, and she kept bugging the cops. On top of that, 
The neighbors hadn't seen him in a while, and they knew that he had attempted suicide when his wife left him. He had taken a six-week supply of Thorazine, so some neighbors were worried. Also, there was a terrible stench. A cop came to check it out, noticing the metal door and the barred windows. He didn't think a lot about it since it was a bad neighborhood. Finally, Heidnick opened the door and said he was fine and that the smell was that he had burnt his dinner. So the cop left. It turns out he was cooking Sandra Lindsay's ribcage. That was a smell. Since she was brought into the cellar, Deborah Dudley was rebellious. She was such a pain in Heidnick's ass, he showed her Lindsay's body parts to scare her into submission. But that didn't last very long. She kept on fighting him. On March 18th, 1986, he had Thomas in the pit, and since she was the biggest, she had Dudley and Askins on her lap. The pit had water in it, and there were holes drilled into a plywood cover. He had the wire ready to electrocute them, and they couldn't see when it was coming because of the board. The wire came through a hole, and it touched a link to the chain that went to Dudley, and she died. He pulled them out, calmly made dog food sandwiches, then had Rivera sign a paper that she was complicit in the death. He left Dudley's body on the floor overnight, then put her in the basement freezer. Four days later, he dumped the body in the Pine Barrens. But after that, he did start to treat the others better. He provided blankets, pillows, and even a TV. On March 23, 1987, he kidnapped prostitute Agnes Adams. He had paid for her services before. Rivera was with him this time, and she knew Agnes as Vicky. He repeated his usual routines. Sex, Heidnick maneuver, then cuffing in the basement. He threw her in the pit. She was lucky, though, because the next day, Rivera escaped. Rivera had convinced him she needed to see her family, and she promised she would return with another woman. He thought it was safe because of that letter saying that she helped him kill Dudley, and if she didn't return, he told her he'd just kill the others. She said she'd meet him at a gas station at midnight. But as soon as she was out of sight, she went straight to her boyfriend. He was going to face him alone, but decided to call the cops, and the cops met, them at the, met him at the gas station. When they searched his house... They found two half-naked women chained in the cellar to pipes and huddled under a blanket on a gross mattress. They found a third woman naked in the pit with her hands cuffed behind her back. In the kitchen freezer, there was a woman's forearm and a roasting pan in the oven charred rib bone. Gary Heidnick wound up paying for his crimes by lethal injection. Some of the nicknames were the Philadelphia Torture Dungeon, Heidnick's House of Horrors, he was the sex slave killer, or the Madman of Marshall Street. One journalist called him the Rolls-Royce Reverend, Rolls-Royce Reverend, and he was into stocks and bondage. I should note that uh, the whole goal of having those women down there were, were to get them pregnant so they would have his 10 babies or whatever, um, but none of them got pregnant. There were two false alarms. I think what's interesting is that his his goal was to have children in that house and it just the conditions that he had them living in were not conducive to having a baby at all and the fact that he was starving them and when he thought they were I mean he thought I believe when Dudley was um hanging from the ceiling he thought she was pregnant so that's why he was forcing her to eat bread it just I don't know <laughs> 
I just can't wrap my mind around it very well, which might be good. I don't know. Um, I do think it's interesting to, when you think about the church that he started. What's interesting about that is that the first inclination is to think, well, of course, he was using them. It, you know, like he got tax exempt st- status. So having a church, you know, so that's a, a great moneymaker for him. What's interesting is that his congregation, he pulled from the uh, the Elwin institution. So they obviously didn't have money or not much of it. And supposedly he didn't even ask them for money. So in a way, that seems weird. So maybe you would start to think, oh, well, if he didn't ask him for money and he did take them to amusement parks and, you know, he let them live with them if, you know, they needed to. So maybe, maybe he did have some, what, altruistic intentions. I, I imagine that he probably cared for them to a certain extent, but he also kept a lot of his money in the church's name. And if you think about it, he has a 130 IQ, but he always chose to be around people with lower IQs than him. And several people that hung out with him would comment that he always seemed like he had to be in control. And especially when it came to women, he wanted women subservient to him. He wanted to be superior. He had to feel like he was not only better than, than them, he was way better than them. And he just needed to control people. So the best congregation would be people who maybe couldn't really function very well on their own and think very clearly about what he was doing and saying and would be easy to control and would be innocent. And that's what makes this truly deplorable to me. And when I read about chaining the woman in the basement and abusing the woman who was 34 with the IQ of a toddler, it just is infuriating. So that's, um, that's pretty much Gary Heidnick. I am sure there will be other things that I will cover. Um, I know at one point I'm going to go over trials and things like that because his trial was interesting. And then the aspects of his mental issues are interesting. He has very interesting things that uh, he said and did. So I will definitely be covering him more in other episodes. I do highly recommend reading Cellar of Horror by Ken Englade. It is a very interesting book and it is full of handy information. Now it's time to talk about Mark Dutroux. Between 1995 and 1996, Mark Dutroux abducted and raped six girls ages 8 to 17. He filmed the assaults. He killed four of them, burying two alive and leaving the others to die of starvation in an underground cell. The number of verified deaths is five because he also killed an accomplice. He was 40 years old during this time period, and it happened in Belgium. Now, normally at this point, I would say the main address where things happened, but there were a couple different addresses, so I'll get into that here in a little bit. Quick background of the time period. In the 1990s, Belgium's public life was shaken by a number of serial scandals. In 1991, a former deputy prime minister and socialist leader was murdered in a contract killing that took several years to come to light. The Dutroux child sex and murder affair in 1996 led to a national outrage, outrage, (laughs) compounded by the realization that less official negligence and inefficiency could have saved the lives of several children. The tragedy fueled pressure for reform of the political, judicial, and police systems. My main 
reference book was I Choose to Live by Sabine Dardenne. She was actually a victim of Dutroux, but but she survived, obviously. She chose to live. She chose to live. I will tell you that most of the things that I have read have been either from the perspective of the people, of the serial killer, or other people writing about it. It was quite an eye-opener to read a book from the victim, especially since she was 12 when it happened. That was the only book that I could find. I did most of my research online. The interesting thing was since this happened so recently, I was able to find all kinds of news articles and it was interesting to read to see how it developed, you know, and see the news articles from the beginning and through even activity this year, which I will also get into. I will have a complete list of all of the web website references on the murderlabmedia.com website on my references page. You can go there to check it out. So, as always, I will go over the important information first. Dutroux was the eldest of five children. His parents were both teachers and emigrated to the Belgian Congo and returned to Belgium in 1960. They separated in 1971, and Dutroux stayed with his mother but left at age 16, working briefly as a prostitute serving men. He married his first wife at the age of 19. They had two children. He divorced her in 1983. At this point, he already had an affair with Michelle Martin. The two would eventually have three children together. They married in 1989 while both were in prison. An unemployed electrician, Dutroux had a long criminal history involving car theft, muggings, and drug dealing. After being convicted of five counts of child rape in 1989, he served three years of a 13-year sentence before being given early release for good behavior. So he was out on parole when he was abducting and raping young girls. He was able to convince a psychiatrist that he was disabled, resulting in a government pension. He also received sleeping pills and sedatives from the doctor, which he would later use to quiet the abducted girls. He came to own seven houses, most of them vacant, and he used three of them to torture the girls he kidnapped. In his house in Marcinelle, near Chauroy, where he lived most of the time, he started to construct a concealed dungeon in the basement hidden behind a massive concrete door disguised as a shelf. The cell was seven feet long, less than three feet wide, and 5.38 feet high. Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo, both aged eight, were kidnapped together while on a walk on June 24, 1995, and imprisoned in Dutroux's cellar. Dutroux repeatedly sexually abused the girls and produced pornographic videos. Two months later... Dutroux and his accomplice Michel Lelivre kidnapped two teenage girls, Erin Marshall, 17, and Yevja Lambrex, 19, best friends who were on a camping trip and on their way home from a night out in a club. Since the dungeon was already in use, occupied by Lejeune and Rousseau, Dutroux chained the girls to a bed in a room of his house. His wife was aware of all of these activities. After a month of being imprisoned, Marshall and Lambrex were buried alive by Dutroux and another accomplice, Bernard Weinstein. In November, Weinstein met the same fate. He was wanted by police in connection with a stolen van, and Dutroux decided to kill him in order to avoid being snared in any investigation. 
However, the following month, Dutroux was arrested over the same theft and served a four-month sentence. He was in custody from December 6, 1995 until March 20, 1996. Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo starved to death because Dutroux's wife claimed she was too afraid to go to the dungeon and feed them as, as instructed. When he got out of prison, he buried their bodies in the garden of a house he owned in the village of sar la bouchiere In May 1996, Dutroux and Lalive abducted 12-year-old Sabine Dardenne as she rode her bike to school. She was held in Dutroux's dungeon for four months, where she too was starved and repeatedly raped. Now I'm going to take a few minutes and go through details that Sabine Dardenne provided in her book, I Choose to Live. Let me say, she is a feisty one. No, broke my heart reading what she went through. She also blew my mind with how tough she was. And she was 12. So first I'm going to read about the actual kidnapping from her point of view. I was just pedaling along, minding my own business, along a rather miserable road that ran beside the high wall of the football stadium. When I heard an engine coming up behind me, I pulled over to the right as usual. I had gone about 50 yards beyond Davina's garage, and I was right by the hedge. There was a house behind his hedge, and if someone had been standing at the window or in the garden, they would have seen everything. But there was no one about. It was too early and still not quite light. If Davina had been waiting for me that morning, then none of this would have ever happened. Or, if the school children who sometimes used this road as a cut-through had been there, I had seen them before, then at least there would have been dozens of witnesses. But I saw no one. I was out in front. It was a real old banger, the kind of beaten-up camper van that looked as if it was lived in by squatters, three seats in the front, and a miserable bunk thing in the back, and disgusting brown and yellow check curtains, with hundreds of car stickers plastered all over the windows. Whenever I'd see one of those rust buckets when I was out with my mother, I'd have a good laugh. Hey, Mom, I shouldn't get too close. Any minute now, and that juddering heap of junk will explode and we'll be knocked unconscious by the flying debris. I just had time to sense it coming up behind me, but saw it properly only when it was right beside me. The slide door slid open, and a man leaning out, while another man was doing the driving. I didn't understand exactly what was happening, because instinctively at that point I closed my eyes even before I felt afraid. It felt as if I'd been grabbed from off of my bike, and the next second I was literally swinging midair with one hand around my mouth and another covering my eyes. For a split second, my foot got stuck under the saddle, but then came free, leaving my bike careening on down the road on its own. In a flash, I'd been thrown inside and my satchel, satchel wrenched off my back. You see it in films. Images flashing on the screen, one after the other. And then it's over. Done. And later, much later, when I was trying to explain how it happened to Davina, all she kept saying was, why hadn't I done anything? Couldn't I at least have tried to fight them off? But one moment I was pedaling, and the next moment I was inside the van. It turned out later, they'd been tracking me for a week, like hunters. Of course I tried to fight them off, but it was half their size. A 12-year-old who looked more like 10, 4 feet 9 inches and less than 5 stone. I was a bit of a sad case. Puny, the boys at school had called me. They couldn't believe that I was old enough to be in secondary school at all. The second I was in the van, I'd been trussed up in a blanket, but when I caught sight of the man's hand about to shove some kind of pills into my mouth, I began to yell at the top of my voice, so he pushed all his weight against me and growled at me to shut up. Just shut up and nothing will happen to you. 
but I had no intention of shutting up. I'd show this bastard. Who are you? What do you want? I shouted. What do you think you're doing? What about my bike? What have you done with it? Don't you understand? I'll be late for school. Who are you? Just let go of me. I'm on my way to school. What is it you want? These questions had been pouring out of me from the start, and I hate not getting answers. Even now, if I don't get an answer, I freak out, and I go on and on relentlessly until I get what I want. I suppose that my yelling was just instinct, a reflex action, until fear began to constrict my throat and I felt I was suffocating. That one moment is undoubtedly the most violent I have ever experienced in my life. It was so sudden and so shocking that I was knocked utterly sideways. In just one second, I had completely disappeared from the outside world, even though I didn't know it yet. I was in shock. The incredible speed of it, the terror of those black eyes inches from my face, and the hand trying to shut me up, this complete stranger with his weird accent, and then being trapped by that stinking blanket. I felt the van stop, the sideways lurch as the driver got out. Okay, get the bike, and don't forget the bag, now, hit it. It was the man in the back doing the ordering. I heard the crunch of gears and we were off again. My bike was now laying beside me, where it had been thrown by the driver. The red bag with my swimming things was in there as well. The whole thing, the snatching, the yelling, the stop, the flinging of my things into the van, had taken no more than a minute. After he got her to the house, first he had her in a bedroom. He made her undress and get in a bunk bed. He put a chain around her neck, which he padlocked to the ladder leading to the top bunk. He put a chamber pot beside it. Her chain was three feet long. I'm going to read from the book where he explains to her why this had been done. This is coming from the kidnapper. You're not to worry. Personally, I've got nothing against you. In fact, I saved your life. But the boss really has it in for you, so he wants money from your parents. He then told me that the boss had it in for me because my father, who had been in the police, had done a bad thing. So this boss was bent on vengeance, and the plan was to get at my father through one of his children, which turned out to be me. He would be demanding a ransom, either one or three million. At least that's what I thought, but now, remembering how I'd said, when I heard the money they were talking about, I realized it must have been three. One million, in a pinch, my parents might have been able to get their hands on by borrowing it from everyone in sight. But three, even if they sold the house, the car, everything they possessed, I knew it was completely out of the question. So he used this idea of this boss to keep her in line. And he kept, he would keep referring everything to the boss. The boss, the boss thinks that I've killed you. So if he finds out that you're alive, he's going to kill you. So he posed himself as the savior to her. He kept saying, I'm your savior. I'm keeping you safe. I'm making sure that he's, the boss isn't getting you. So on the second day, he took her to another bedroom, where, as she said, he did things to her, and he took Polaroids. She referred to that room as Calvary, which also means agony in French. Um, again, an excerpt from the book. Even now, I can't really understand how I could bear this man, this disgusting, ugly, stinking old man. After all, that's what he was in my 12-year-old eyes. Doing things to me. I was being held for ransom. I understood that. But this? He claimed that he had saved my life, while at the same time he continued to treat me like an animal. It's true that up until then, I hadn't actually been hit or beaten or raped. Yet his behavior was so disgusting that I just had to try hard not to think about it, just empty my mind of the vileness of it all. I'd find myself back in my bunk, chained up, my eyes on the ceiling, once again paralyzed by fear, with just one idea chasing its tail in my head. What next? 
what's going to happen to me next? This next was terrifying enough before anything actually happened. I spent my time crying, dozing off from time to time. I had a permanent headache. I was in a state of shock, utterly without hope and alone, worse than any nightmare anyone could possibly imagine. He also led her to believe that this boss had houses all around his, and the boss monitored the phones. There was one phone on top of the fridge, which was too high for her to reach, but even if she could reach it, she was terrified to call because he said that the boss would hear her when she picked up the phone. So after three days, he took her to his quote-unquote secret place, the hidey hole. And now I will read the excerpt of when he took her down to the dungeon. At the end of the third day, he takes me down into his secret place, the hidey hole. There's a staircase leading down to a cellar, and I see a shelf that seems to come out of the wall as if by magic, and I think I must be hallucinating. On this stack of metallic shelving, there are packs of bottled water, packs of beer, and other different kinds of bottles. The first thing he does is take everything off and put it on the floor. Then, grabbing hold of the lowest shelf, he pulls it towards him, and a whole piece of the wall opens up. Then he wedges open this invisible door, which must have weighed half a ton, with a concrete brick, leaving only a small triangular gap to squeeze behind. Once the shelf is back in place, it's completely invisible. When he shows me how it works, I can tell he's really quite proud of his handiwork. When you edge over to the right, you come to a gate like a metal grill, which was always open. Immediately after that, there's a sort of bed base made of wooden slats, with a mattress on top of it, like something you might find in a skip, falling apart. Disgusting. It was quite a narrow cellar, about three feet wide and nine feet long. I didn't actually measure it myself, I found that out later. But I didn't need measurements to realize that I could suffocate in this place. It was so dank and dirty that one look was enough. There was a little wooden shelf fixed to the wall, two light bulbs, and a small plank that couldn't take anything very much, but this is where I used to keep my crayons and my glasses. At the far end of the wall, where the head of the bed went, if you could call something so hideous a bed, was another shelf, high up, with an old television on it that did duty as a video screen and a Sega game console. On the wall to the right was a little bench and table. If I sat on the bench, then my feet were on my mattress. At the end of the mattress was the grill, and then the concrete door, and at the bottom of the bed there was just enough room to put my satchel in the chamber pot. You turned on the TV by pressing a knob. It was so ancient that I must have got it off a skip. There was no remote. It was all wooden fascia and knobs. Needless to say, it didn't work. It was only used for playing the game. He had given me the impression that he constructed this dirty little hole specifically for my benefit. Looking at the tacky wooden bed base and the decrepit TV screen, it should have been obvious to me that I wasn't the first occupant. But he went on and on about how he'd had to do it up very quickly, especially for me. It was such a dump that I believed him. The bit of the hidey hole that was mine had been painted. Sloshed would be a better word. A hideous yellow cover. A two-year-old could have done a better job. The walls were concrete, and the place had originally been a water cistern. So I'm going to be shut up in this hellhole. I remember making a face as if to say, you've got to be joking. To pacify me, he demonstrated the state-of-the-art ventilator he'd installed. It was a pathetic thing that had once been part of a computer and was now attached to the roof. This way you won't have a problem with a lack of air, he explained. Then the false half-ton door closed on me, and I still had no answers to my questions. So she was given 
emergency supplies of milk, jerry cans of tap water, and bread. Silence was vital, so the boss or his henchman could never hear her and kill her. She'd have to wait until he said, it's me, and then she was allowed to talk. She started a calendar to help her make it through the days. Thankfully, she had her book bag with her, so that gave her something to do. At one point when she was upstairs, she noticed women's and children's clothing, but he said he wasn't married and had no children. She was later horrified to find out at the time that his wife knew of all of this, and he also had two kids. As for hygiene, he had the same lackadaisical attitude about it as Gary Heidnick. He would only let her bathe once a week, and he had to wash her himself. He would scrub her so hard that her skin would blister, and she'd come out of the bathroom covered in red sores. He would make steak in front of her, but heat up what she called horrible stuff in the microwave and give it to her. He'd give her milk while he had cocoa. He'd get angry with her if she refused to eat the moldy bread or sour milk he gave her. He finally gave her a radio alarm clock, but she couldn't get a news channel and had no idea that people were looking for her. The poor girl did homework to keep herself entertained. She hated math, but she practiced it just to stay sane. Can you imagine how terrible that would be? I mean, naturally, the starvation and isolation is worse, but that's just rubbing shit on a maggot sandwich. He said she could write her parents, and the asshole actually said he spoke to them and would tell her what they said back. Of course, they never saw the notes, and he never really spoke to them. He said her mom said to make sure to wash well and that she should enjoy the sex. She'd have to stay there because they couldn't afford the ransom. Dardine didn't think that her mom would say those things, but she was discombobulated by the whole thing. She fluctuated between feeling guilty and deserving of the circumstances, and she couldn't blame her parents for the situation. But other times, she was resentful that they weren't doing more to help her. Plus, she was 12 and in an extreme situation. They did wind up finding three of the letters under his doormat. He would sometimes leave for a few days to go on missions for the boss, so she'd be stuck in the dungeon for days. He gave her tinned stuff, like tomatoes and meatballs, which she had to eat cold. Coarse, moldy bread. The only thing very good was little biscuits called knickknacks in the form of letters of the alphabet. She said the worst thing about the time that he was away was that she couldn't clean her chamber pot. He could be gone for up to six days, and it was almost unbearable. When he was home, sometimes she'd have to sleep all night in bed with him, chained to him by her ankle. She was afraid to sleep. She didn't want him doing things to her while she was unconscious. She prided herself on the ability to say no to him, even if he didn't really listen. Even if he had his way, it was important for him to know that she rejected him. At one point, she saw a magazine with the address on it and the name Michelle Martin. She also saw Cell 154 and knew they had been in jail. She saw the name Mark Dutru on an envelope. She couldn't really do anything with the information, but she felt it in her mind. Her routine was to go downstairs and eat, go upstairs for the photo sessions and other things, which she called his circus, because she knew other, no other way of to think of his fiddling around. At one point, she had a toothache and complained about it, but he said, if your teeth hurt, I'll pull them out myself. So she stopped complaining. She had no idea that he had ever kidnapped other girls, but she did find three photos of naked girls. She found one of her chained to the bunk bed, and I quote, The expression on my face was one of sheer terror. My eyes were swollen from crying, and my body was covered with red splodges. The photo must have been taken while I was still suffering the side effects of the drugs I'd been given. Sometimes he'd let her have yogurt or three sweets. She was coping with it, 
but she said any change to the routine made her disoriented and destabilized. One day he put her on the left of the table rather than the right, and she freaked out. The hidey hole became infested with brown creeping things that made sporadic attempts at flying. She was covered with red blotches and was always scratching. He finally sprayed insecticide, and she had to sleep upstairs with him for two days. She constantly asked questions to irritate him and show she wasn't going to be docile about it. She badgered him about being naked until he gave her clothes. She bugged him until he gave her a percolator and a heater to help her stay warm. She noticed he liked it when she cried, so she refused to cry in front of him. He started to call her his new wife. She refused to call him anything but you. And the most formal version of it. In French, it could be the informal tu, to you, but she used the formal vu, V-O-U-S. She did try to get out of the cellar once, but the door was way too heavy to budget enough to fit through it. On the 77th day of her captivity, she was hemorrhaging dangerously and in unimaginable pain. He gave her pampers to wear that needed changed every half hour. She was really afraid she was going to die. Thankfully, she got better. But she was so lonely, she began asking him to let one of her friends come see her for a little bit. Again, she had no idea he had ever kidnapped anyone before. She really didn't want another girl to go through what she was going through, but she was so desperate for companionship and someone to help her with her burden. So he brought her a friend. On August 9th, she was joined by 14-year-old Letitia Delhez, who was kidnapped by Dutru and Lelievre as she walked home from her local swimming pool. He had her chained to the bunk, naked under a sheet, and brought Dardenne down to meet her. Dardenne realized with horror that the girl had been taken like she had been. She felt guilty, but part of her was relieved to have someone with her. She would struggle with that moment for the rest of her life. He had drugged Delhez so much she was pretty out of it for days. The tiny hidey hole was barely big enough for one girl, let alone two. When Delhez was more awake, she recognized Dardenne. She told Dardenne how everyone was looking for her, and Dardenne could hardly believe it. Thankfully, two days after Delhez disappeared, a young man informed the police that he had noticed a su suspicious white van and provided the first three letters of the license plate, L-N-E, the initials of his sister. There was also a nun that had gotten irritated by the sound of the broken exhaust and had noted the vehicle. They traced the license plate and discovered the van's owner was Mark Dutroux. Four days later, Dutroux, Martin, and Lelev were arrested. Dutroux was caught by surprise while in his own back garden. Several hundred pornographic videos with underage victims were found in Dutroux's houses. Some were spliced into video cassettes of Laurel and Hardy and Tom and Jerry. Two days later, Dutroux and Lelev confessed, and Dutroux led police to his makeshift dungeon, where Dardenne and Delhez were found alive. Dutroux had them so brainwashed that when Dardenne saw him with the cops, she assumed he had finally gotten them freedom, and she said thank you, and both girls gave him a kiss on the cheek. She was amazed to find out that thousands of people had been searching, scouring the countryside and dredging the river. A special incident center had even been set up to look into the disappearances. Two days after that, the bodies of Lejeune, Rousseau, and Weinstein were exhumed. The girls had plastic bags over their skeletal remains, duct tape where their mouths had once been. Dutroux had crushed Weinstein's testicles until he revealed a money, a money hiding place. Then he drugged him and buried him alive. He claimed that he had killed Weinstein because he had failed to feed the girls during Dutroux's time in custody. Seventeen days later, Marshall and Lambrecht's bodies were found. 
Dutroux had claimed he was part of a human trafficking ring that involved people in the police and government. It didn't help that there were quite a few problems with the investigation, or lack thereof, and it incited the people to call for a restructure. Half a million Belgians participated in sit-ins, strikes, and riots in the three days following, calling for reform of Belgium's judicial system, and coffins bearing Martin's name were set alight. The White March, a peaceful demonstration at which people wore white and silently carried flowers and balloons, was a culmination of these protests. One of the problems was that the police had been warned repeatedly by Dutroux's mother, who called her son an incorrigible criminal. An informer also told them of Dutroux's... Actually, you know, I was going to go back right over that. But how bad do you have to be for your own mom to call you a criminal and report you to the police? I don't know. That's pretty crazy to me. His own mom was like, seriously. All right, so there was also... An informer that told them of Dutroux's intentions to abduct and sell young girls for commercial purposes, which, it has turned out, ranged from prostitution to pornographic films to possibly ritual sacrifice. According to the informer, Claude Theroult, the police had known of Dutroux's intentions as early as the summer of 1993, when Theroult had told them that Dutroux was constructing a basement bunker to hold the slender girls with long hair he said he was seeking. Dutroux had offered Theroult up to 150,000 francs per girl, 6,000 at the current exchange rate, and even provided him with a crash course in child abduction. Seize them from behind, place a sedative-soaked rag under the nose, then throw them in the back of the car and make certain you have activated the child-proof safety locks. Dutroux had painted a Mr. Michel Nehol as the link between himself and an international ring of wealthy pedophiles. No evidence of such a ring was ever found, and the guy was acquitted of kidnapping and rape after the jury failed to reach a verdict on those charges. So no evidence was found of a pedophile sex slave ring, but thankfully changes were made to hopefully prevent something like this from happening again. Now, it took eight years, but eight years later, in 2004, 47-year-old Dutroux was sentenced to life in prison for the abduction, abduction and rape of six girls and the murder of Weinstein. Michelle Martin, 44, was sentenced to 30 years in prison for causing the death of the two eight-year-olds. Michel Lelevre, 33, was sentenced to 25 years for complicity in the kidnappings and other charges. He was granted parole this year after serving 23 years of his 25-year sentence. The last co-defendant, Michel Nihol, 63, a businessman, was sentenced to five years for helping smuggle drugs and people into Belgium. The house on the avenue of Philippeville, 128, in Marcenel, is most often cited in the media. All girls were held captive here in the basement and the bedroom. The, the municipality of Charleroi seized ownership of this house because of what happened there and the bad state of the house. There are plans to create an open space with a memorial site there. In August 2012, Detroit's ex-wife and accomplice, Michelle Martin, was granted parole 16 years into her 30-year sentence a move that was met by protests. Thousands marched again. Nicknames for Marc Dutroux include the Monster of Belgium and the Most Hated Man in Belgium. I will be covering more information on Marc Dutroux in other episodes. In the meantime, feel free to check out the reference page on murderlabmedia.com if you would like to do more reading about Marc Dutroux or any of the other people that I've discussed in my episodes so far. 
I will be doing two more episodes on serial killers that had murder labs. And they include Jerry Brudos, Michael Lupo, Leonard Lang and Charles Ng as a, a pair that did, did bad things together. And then David Parker Ray. So make sure you stay tuned. I'm going to try to release them closer together. I apologize for the long gap between the first and second episodes. But I will keep them coming. I will also be coming out with some smaller episodes that I call Fun Size. Because if you don't know, I am under five feet tall. So last podcast on the left has side stories. So I decided I'm going to have fun size episodes. So in one of them, I'll go over why I call this podcast Murder Lab. And I will also be doing one on whether it is annoying or exciting or a little bit of both when serial killers are referenced in movies and TV shows. So we'll get, I'll get into more of that. Hopefully um, I'll release that within the next week or so. So stay tuned. I have some more stuff coming out and I'll be posting more stuff on my Instagram and Facebook pages. So uh, stay tuned to murderlabmedia.com and everything. Again, I am Queen Victoria. Thank you very much for your time. What about my bike?